Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. Here's the podcast. We get maybe a thousand emails a week with questions for the show. And these days, a lot of them are about polls. We know the polls have tightened this last week. And they always do in the closing days of a campaign because we are a closely divided country. And as a vote nears, those divisions become even clearer. So a reminder that the outcome depends on who turns out to vote, not what people tell pollsters. That said, we wanted to get a real pollster in here with us to give some insight on the good and the bad of polls and how they work. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And we have a special guest with us from the Pew Research Center, Courtney Kennedy, director of survey research there. Hi, Courtney. Hi. Thanks for being here today. Thanks. How are you, Sam? I'm good. We're going to have you talk more about a thing you talk about all the time, polls. Happy to do it. I will say it feels like this election, I have seen more polls every day than I feel I've ever seen before. And yet... There are actually fewer polls, aren't there, for uh, state polls in particular compared to 2008 and 2012, right? I think that's true. Um, it does feel like polling in general is increasing in volume, but there's certainly states, um, the states that are not battlegrounds just don't get heavily polled. That's mm-hmm. absolutely the case. So if you're looking to know the state of a race in Wyoming or in Illinois, you're probably not going to find very much polling data there. Uh-huh. Well, you're going to help us get to the bottom of all this stuff uh, with a crash course on polls. Let's do it. I want to start with exit polling. Uh, days from now, we're going to be glued to our TVs, watching the election, watching the results of these exit polls. What will be happening behind the scenes out in those states, giving us that data while we're watching? It's actually starting right now because there's so much early voting. Um, there's really two major components to what we call the exit poll. The first is a, t- a national telephone poll that's going on right now to capture people that um, have already voted or that say they definitely will vote before Election Day. So you can't get those people, obviously, um, in person at a precinct. So you got to get them. Um, we do it on the telephone. Um, and then separately on Election Day, there are people that, that are assigned to sampled precincts across the country that interview people as, as they're leaving the, the polling place. So is there a good chance that you will actually see an exit poller if you're voting on Tuesday? Not a good chance, right? I mean, so it's, uh, it's one of those chance of getting struck by lightning kind of things. It's a very small probability when okay. you think of the millions of people that will be voting. Um, and the way it works is not actually like just sort of exiting the voting booth in particular, but more exiting the premises, sort of walking out to your car or walking back to your home. Uh, once you're off site of the facility, then the exit poller randomly samples voters. And to tack on to that, this is information that uh, Edison Research, which does the exit polling, uh, gave me earlier this year. We cited it in an earlier podcast for the uh-huh. superfans. Um, they do 900 to 1,000 uh, polling sites, and they hit about 100,000 to 130,000 people. And yeah, out of what, 120-some million voted in 2012, something like that. So That's I mean, right. That, yeah. So it's a tiny, 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 yes. tiny sliver. Yeah. So big picture for me here, you know, should we trust exit polls? I mean, they've been wrong in the past. There's been some error in them. But overall, should we trust exit polls? Yes. I mean, you have to keep in mind, <laughs> you too. You have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Well, think of the alternative. I mean, the, the exit polls, there's two things that happen on election night and people often conflate them. So there is one process where people are calling winners of races, right? And that's often called the decision desk. And all the major news outlets have a decision desk where they're calling races. And that's based on, you know, these historical models and also the data that are coming in that day, right? Um, And then separately, you have the exit poll. And the exit poll is used to talk about who voted for which candidates and why. And those data 
uh, are weighted to adjust for the potential problems in terms of non-response and so forth. Um, and after waiting, um, they're they're generally quite good. It is interesting that you know over the course of the evening, there's different rounds of waiting. So it's possible that that those estimates change throughout the night, but they they're usually not changing wildly. So how do you exit poll in a state with some form of mail-in voting? That's where we do exclusively telephone polls. And okay. there's four states this year. So, you know, they tend to be at West. You're Colorado, uh, Washington, Oregon, and, Air- and um, Washington, Oregon, and Arizona. Um, there is no in-person component there. It's and Colorado, just phone. right? In Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. What is the biggest uh, area in which exit polling can go wrong. Yeah, I mean, do you have people ever, you know, say to an exit pollster, the, I don't know, the wrong or the opposite of what they actually voted for? I mean, people who just want to... Like tampering. S- see with... the world burn, you know? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt that there's some of that. Mm-hmm. I do think it's incredibly rare, and yep. it's really just, at the end of the day, it's just kind of a little bit of noise that gets thrown in there. There's no um, evidence that that's ever happened on a meaningful, on a systematic scale. I mean, I think... The worst fear of um, people using exit polls is that um, one side of the aisle, you know, Republicans Mm -hmm. or Democrats might be sort of systematically more or less likely to To do the exit poll Um, than the other mm -hmm. folks. Even then, though, you know, there are adjustments that are made to try to correct for that kind of thing. And they also know at the individual level, there are certain characteristics that are shown to um, make someone more likely to participate in the exit poll. So they've been very clear about the fact that younger people, younger voters are actually more likely, yes, Hmm. to take the exit poll than than older voters. They don't know exactly why. Um, It could be that it's more novel. Young people are excited to be voting, engaged in the civic process. Um, could be that that older voters maybe are, are more cynical. They don't actually know. One year it seemed to potentially be related to the age of the interviewer. Really? Yeah, hmm. the, the interviewers were sort of young on average, um, and maybe younger voters just felt more comfortable than older voters huh. speaking to these younger interviewers. So we know that the night of the election, lots of folks are scrambling to get as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, to call the race. Uh, exit poll data, which is crunched by newsrooms, uh, actual results from states as they come in, and all that's to make a call that night. My question is, is there a downside to this sense of urgency? Why not just say, America, you know, we're going to count it up nice and slow, all the votes, get it right, and that might take a few days. Why not that? Well, I think there's a lot of people that would say that would be a good move, um, but it's not it's not realistic in today's media environment, right? There's every year there's more and more data available. There's more sophisticated ways, more data analytics that are applied to to analyze it. So I don't think it's realistic that we're sort of have the pendulum swing back that direction. Um, but I do think to the your slow, point, the slow poll movement. <laughs> I'm down for that. What were you saying? Um, I, this year, though, it's been interesting. There's um, been um, a movement with some organizations to do more of that early discussion of calling races before even maybe polls close. And huh. um, the latest historical uh, example, the most major one was, I think, in 1980, where they called one of the networks called the California presidential race before polls had closed in California. Wow. And that was very controversial. Yeah. And a lot of political scientists were looking into that saying, did that affect turnout? in California. And there wasn't a ton of evidence to to say that it really had a big impact. But think about 1980 versus today. Today, people standing in line at a polling place have a smartphone. Mm -hmm. And so maybe in in California in 1980, they didn't know that that call had been made. But today, people would see it 
instantaneously. And mm-hmm. so I don't think we really, to your question, I don't think we really know whether it would affect turnout and by how much. But the risk to me seems higher because of smartphone technology. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because w- what if you're standing in the back of a two hour voting line and you see, well, Everybody's going to vote for Clinton anyway. I'm going home. I'm, I'm going. I'm getting in my car. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. It doesn't seem too far fetched. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Slow poll movement. I like that, Domenico. <laughs> um, so let's also talk about opinion polls. Uh, we've been following these all year. They're different from exit polls because it happens before you voted, and you're asking folks how they're going to vote. What makes opinion polls unique? I guess. So opinion polls are trying to tell the story of the campaign. What's happening right now? What are voters reacting to? How are they reacting to it? And that, of course, changes. Um, It's been changing throughout the year. So it gets, you know, um, more of an instantaneous reaction to the different developments that are happening in the campaign. And they give you an early read into some of those big picture questions about what is this election about? um, What's on people's minds and so forth. So I often hear from a lot of people who will say, no pollster called me. Right, And then you look at a sample and you say, there's a thousand people in this. And we're saying, oh, that's a good sample size, right? But there's 300 plus million people in the country. How is a thousand people a good sample size? That's a great question. I think the easiest way to think about this is when you go to the doctor, they need to draw some blood to figure out you know, what's in your system. Do you want them to take all of it or just take a sample? Uh. <laughs> and polling is works the same way. And it's all about how it's done. So the reason that, for example, Pew Research Center, we do random digit dialing is because there is a master list of all the telephone numbers in the country. And we can draw a perfectly representative sample geographically in terms of where people live. um, And that's nationally representative. And then we interview people. And if there's any um, differences left over and, you know, maybe some uh, Caucasians were more likely to take the survey than, than other groups, we statistically adjust for that. We align the sample to what we know the population looks like from, for example, the Census Bureau or um, another federal agency. Um, so in that way, we get a nationally representative picture. That's interesting because does it throw it off at all? Like, for example, I've lived in D.C. for eight years. I still have a Minnesota telephone number. So does that make it harder to weight these things? So if it's a national poll, it does not matter. Mm Because what happens then is we just take, what did you say about where you live? And we use that as your place of residence Mm -hmm. in, in the weighting adjustment. If, however, you're trying to poll district residents you're in trouble. I see. Because then people uh, in, in your situation with an out-of-state telephone number tend to be systematically excluded. Now, if you have a landline, you might be covered that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But it, it is a real problem. Actually, we looked at this um, in one of our reports in D.C., the metro D.C. area, not surprisingly with all the people that move here, was one of the worst areas in the country in terms of the magnitude of this problem. Hmm. And the... Um, the sample vendors that sell pollsters, those samples of numbers, they're trying to develop ways to um, to get at this by getting actually sort of um, people's comparing their, their cell phone billing address to where they live and what their cell phone number is and trying to fix that problem. But I think huh. that's still in the early stages. It is an issue. So has polling gotten better or worse? Because I keep hearing people talk about the fact that there's all these polling challenges because it's harder to get people on the phone. Um, it you depends know. what part of the polling industry you're talking about. It's you can't get around the fact that different pollsters are polling very differently. Um, if you're actually talking about telephone, random digit dial that does a lot of cell phone, I'd say it's never been better. Really? Because 
Um, when we, back in you know the early 2000s, 1990s, when people were just dialing landlines, pollsters struggled mightily to get young adults and to mm-hmm. get um, a racially, ethnically diverse sample. And guess who we get on cell phones? We get we do tremendously well in terms of getting a, a representative picture. Um, if you look at one of our polls, don't wait the data. It it lines up almost perfectly with census figures on race and age because we we dial so many cell phones. Mm. Hmm. So from that perspective, we're doing quite well, and, and data quality is is still quite high. Um, but then if you look at pollsters that are just dialing landlines, those get worse every year. Go. So one question I have is, you know. It's the media and the people consuming uh, the stories that we write get very obsessed with these polls. And I'm wondering, do you have any pet peeves or things that as a pollster, you look at the way that we or other organizations cover these polls? And do you say, oh, I, you know, you're doing that wrong or you're paying way too much attention to X, Y, Z? Or just yell at the TV and say, stop. Yeah. Enough. The most common thing is to bemoan the obsession with the horse race, mm-hmm. right? Candidate A is up by two points. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're down by two points. I do think that there's too much emphasis on that. And frankly, polls aren't designed to be that precise. They're typically, a lot of the polls you report, see reported are a couple hundred respondents. Um, they have to be heavily weighted. They're not really going to give you that that precision, that the, the way that people slice it and dice it. They, they can give you a good feel for the position of the race and how things are looking. Uh, but I, I think they're afforded uh, more precision than they actually provide. Well, then on, on top of that, you have this new phenomenon of like the averaging of the polls. And so you'll have websites and folks here and there say, well, we've compiled all the polls, put them together. And so now we can say this. But even that can be problematic or misleading sometimes, right? Absolutely. Because um, that process tends to treat all of those polls that I just talked about more or less the same, mm-hmm. even though there's tremendous yes. variation in, in the <laughs> yep. rigor in which they're conducted. And um, at least one of the aggregators this year is sort of weighting polls proportional to the number of interviews that they did. And mm-hmm. that's that might sound good, but... <laughs> if the methodology is still not good, then that's... That's right. Yeah. And actually, it's my experience that polls that have a ginormous sample size are usually trying to compensate for something. Uh, <laughs> well. <Yeah. laughs> so applicable. <laughs> so many areas of life. Um, so what other type of poll I want to ask about are tracking polls that we've seen more and more of as Election Day approaches. Um, maybe uh, can you explain for our listeners what they are? And also, I've been curious... Um, should I treat those in my brain differently from how any other opinion poll that comes out looks? So second question first. No, I wouldn't necessarily treat them differently. Um, what's going on with a tracking poll? Is it instead of doing one poll fielded over three nights, the pollster might stay in the field for the last two, three weeks of the election or even the last month of the election. So every night that pollster um, is in the field conducting probably 300, 400 interviews every single night. And so then on a tracking basis, what they do is they'll take maybe the last five nights and combine those interviews and produce an estimate. Like in 2012, the Gallup Daily tracking poll was always one of my big pet peeves because it was like the EKG. And you, after like seeing it after a while, like you knew the third day it was going to go down and by the second day it was going to be up. And like you could see the range and every single day you'd have producers or executives asking, what does this mean that it went up by one? Or what does that mean that it went down by three? Like what? <laughs> I mean, what? How do? You, how does a normal person listening to this? How do you take in all that information? That's a great question. That is one of the hot button topics for pollsters because what's happening there, and it happened to us at Pew in 2012, 
is the fancy term is differential partisan non-response. Uh-oh, that what is, is that? Fancy. Okay. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> Sounds like an acronym coming. <laughs> anyway. Um, you might recall the first debate in 2012, President Obama is widely regarded to have underperformed yes. um, in that first debate, but Romney did relatively well. So coming into that debate, um, Pew Research Center and other folks had Obama with um, you know a, a pretty substantial lead, maybe seven, eight percentage points. And then we went into the field that next night and for several nights right after that first debate, and then we had a tide race. Wow. And But it wasn't just a tide race. We had a much more Republican sample. Oh. And so the thinking is, we don't have a lot of hard data, but the thinking is that Democrats were disappointed in what happened. And right. They, that doesn't they didn't want to talk about and it. And that doesn't mean your poll is skewed. Like, Wait, that's so, the other. No, I, that's, yeah. that's so right. So you're saying that Democrats saw Obama do poorly in that debate and said, I'm not talking to a pollster. Oh, I see. That's the theory. Huh. That's the theory. And uh, But it's hard to know in, um, in random digit dialing. But so the question is, one solution would be to wait to adjust your data so you force it to hit a percent, what you think is a percent yes. Republican, Democrat, and independent, because hmm. you can get those data from from mm-hmm. other polling sources. And it's interesting, about half the field does, uh-huh. and about half the field doesn't. And the internet pollster is actually more likely to do that, hmm. because in general, because they're not starting from a national random sample, they have to do more modeling. They mm-hmm. have to do more adjustment to model their yeah. way out of it and make their data look more representative. Um, but Pew Research Center, we're, we're not at the point where we're doing that type of um, adjustment yeah. to, to party. I have a polling question for folks trying to get at the good polls and snuff out the bad polls. What are the like three or four or five things that you should look for as far as red flags when saying I can trust this poll or not? This used to be an easy question to answer back in the <laughs> days where you know pretty much everyone was doing um, telephone and it was easy to, uh, to distinguish between polls. But as I said earlier, there's just so much diversity in polling. But there are, there are a few red flags. So one is if the sample size is really small. We've seen some polls this year that are reported based on maybe 100 or less interviews. Huh. I wow. wouldn't, I would pay, okay. no, pay no attention. Okay. Um, the other one is landline, landline. Uh, okay. polls. pay no attention. Maybe in a Republican race where the electorate is skewed quite old and, mm-hmm. and yeah. Caucasian, you get away with that. In a presidential election, that okay. seems very risky to me. Um, what about the ones? ones. Well, there were so many that Donald Trump himself quoted after debates. I won this oh, online right. poll. I won that online poll. That's a great decision. Those, are like right. Those aren't even online polls. Those are like surveys. They don't Those even are, enter her yeah. head, really. You're like, I don't even count that. <laughs> we need a new word for that because people do call them polls or Make surveys. Make a new word for it. Uh, the most common phrase is a, a flash poll. Okay. And the idea, though, is that it's it's unrestricted. Anyone can take yes. it. Um, multiple some, times even, Multiple right? times. <laughs> yeah. So you can program a bot to take it a thousand <laughs> times. There's It's it's unrestricted. So that is, to me, fundamentally different than yes. drawing a sample where you have control over who's in it and you can adjust it and so forth. So. It's like the polling equivalent of like calling into American Idol to vote. It's exactly it. It's the American Idol poll. <laughs> it's the voice poll. It's, like, doing a tw- it's, not, it's not a poll. It's doing Kelly a poll Clarkson from your for president. T- yeah. It's doing a poll from your Twitter account. Yes. Like, I mean, yes. you probably have a better you know, margin of error if you like sampled a hundred of your friends because at least they couldn't vote twice. <laughs> um, so this being this is taping on the last day of October. And as we know, this is the month for surprises. There have been seemingly some about every day in this month, but every cycle there's a big October surprise that people say could drastically affect the outcome of a race for president. 
what is the truth around October surprises? How much can they move the electorate? And does polling support the claim that they can? Polling shows that they tend to have a very small effect. Okay. Even things that seem dramatic in the news cycle when it's happening don't tend to move the polls. Okay. Think about in particular this year, people have very strong baked in opinions about both candidates. I think if you had an election where there was a um, historically high share of undecideds, if you had more mixed views or unsettled views about the candidate, then there's more room to move opinion. But this election is probably the, the opposite of that. So um, we've talked before on this podcast about the idea of a Bradley effect for Donald Trump. For those that don't know, the Bradley effect references Tom Bradley, who ran for governor of California. He's a black man. And uh, people believed that in polls, Lots of people said they were going to vote for him, but didn't because they were trying to appear to pollsters at least uh, as racially progressive. There's a lot of reporting since then that says the Bradley effect does not exist. But this idea that people don't always tell pollsters the entire truth, is that something that we're dealing with in this election? Folks saying they are or are not going to vote for Trump because they're not sure how people will look at them if they say they are or are not going to vote for Trump. There's always some of that in polling. You always have some people that might not tell you the the exact truth. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is it's in all likelihood going to be very small. I don't think that's going to play a meaningful role in, in how the polls do in this election cycle. This is something that we were really concerned about in 2008 hmm. with Barack Obama running for president. That was, um, that was on everybody's minds, the idea that you might um, measure strong support for Obama going into election day and then have him um, underperform. But that's not what happened. And so there was really no Bradley effect in 2008. That was really the, the canary in the coal mine in yeah. terms of contemporary polling. Uh, I do think that there is some fraction of the population that, that might be supporting Trump but might not want to announce that to a, a stranger on the phone, but I think it's small. What is about for Clinton? Is there a Bradley yeah, effect for Clinton? Say, is, yeah. there, is there an equal or somewhat, you know, some number? I mean, if you live in a state that's red mm -hmm. uh, or your neighborhood's red. I, I think the, the potential is there. There's no doubt. Um, but I just think that um, the magnitude is very small. Mm -hmm. And we tried to get at that um, this summer. We did a survey nationally. We asked people... Basically, how comfortable would you be um, if your friends and family members knew who you intended uh -huh. to vote for? Uh -huh. And hmm. it sort of there's this four point scale and um, very small numbers of both Clinton supporters and Trump supporters said that they would be concerned or not want people to know. Uh, mm. for whom they were going to vote. I'm curious. I don't know if you have an opinion on this or not, but um, there are some sort of alternative prediction things that people are using. For example, like online markets and that sort of thing. What do you th what do you think of things like predict it and uh, betting markets? Because, Formerly in trade. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> because some people uh, like Justin Wolfers from uh, University of Michigan has been saying, you know, like this is this is actually a pretty good way of seeing who will win an election. Yeah. If your goal is to just predict uh -huh. the outcome. I can't really argue with that. You know, I, I like to think of myself as an empiricist, which means someone that really trusts, you know, if I, if I see data that's compelling, then, then I'll use that to update my opinion. And if you look at the performance of those prediction markets, it's a relatively strong one. They tend to do pretty well, and I, I really can't argue with that. So I think fundamentally that is not a bad way to, to try to figure out who's who's going to win, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Last part of this episode, we're going to have you help us answer some questions that we've gotten from listeners via email. Great. Is that cool? Thank you. All right. First one comes from Bridget. She writes, quote, 
Hey, NPR Politics, I'm a 21-year-old American college student studying journalism, in parentheses, woo journalism, and I'm currently studying abroad in London. One of the first things people ask me when they find out that I'm American is ask me if I think Donald Trump has a chance in winning the election. I tell them that the polls have him down, and even with all the craziness with Clinton's emails, she still has an overwhelming lead. My British classmates, however, say they don't trust the polls after what happened with Brexit. Do you think there's a chance that the polls are wrong and the American people could have a Brexit-type situation on their hands where Trump comes out on top? I love the podcast and hope to catch vocalness on tour sometime after the election, of course. Thanks, Bridget. Thank you, Bridget. Okay, this this is a valid question, right? Brexit caught everyone off guard. Very good question, Bridget. Um, There is a chance. You're saying there's a chance, right? There's a chance. (laughs) But it's, it, it looks to be small. And there is an important distinction between um, polling in the UK and polling in the US. Which is? Which is that in the, in the UK, there are no what we call probability-based polls. And by, by pro- that's a fancy word for a poll where you start with a true nationally representative sample where everybody had a chance of being selected. Why don't they have that over there? Yeah, don't they have the same math as us? Because it's expensive. Okay. They it's, just spend less on polling. We have a better uh, on polling average, system. Short answer. We foreign, have better polling. Foreign polls are worse than American polls? It's not that all U.S. polling is better yeah. than all, right? Um, because in the U.S., like I said, we have this master list of all the telephone numbers. We can sample from that. That's a very good place to start from. Um, and that way we do know the probability that each person gotcha was selected. And that helps eliminate off the bat a lot of what we call non-coverage problems. Um, it can help with non-response. So that's that's just a good place to so start. So the UK has no master list? If they do, the pollsters aren't using it. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. okay. Again, like- reasons why the metric system is worse, apparently. <laughs> I don't think that's the metric question. No. I'm, I'm suddenly all. feeling very patriotic, though. Our poll, our polling is great, you guys. Like, or you, you could see this say. as the yeah, claim yeah. that America has the largest election industrial complex in the world. Well, that's true. That, yeah. That's so Next glass question. half empty. But that makes, but that makes our polling great. Yeah. Do you have like a polling pet peeve? Like the one thing about polling or the questions folks ask about polling or anything where you're just like, everyone stop that now? Well, I think um, a couple of days ago, one pollster had... Um, Hillary up by 11 or 12 and like somebody else had Trump up by one or they had it tied and people read way too much into that. And the thing to keep in mind is a lot of these design things, whether it's Internet or phone, like it's because these polls are designed so differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people treat polls the same. If you look at some of the aggregator websites, there's like a million dots and they're all polls and they treat they treat them all the same. And some polls cost, you know, $100,000 and some polls cost you know, two thousand uh-huh. dollars, and guess what? Like it one shows. has better data than the <laughs> other. So, so the fact that there's just all these black dots on the screen—that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know, it really it makes them a commodity, which, if you understand the industry, is is kind of a false pretense. The biggest dot poll should be yours, right? <laughs> there's a number of good of good, of good pollsters out there, actually. I think what we're going to see in the future is more doing the the voter files. That's a really efficient way to reach voters, right? Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, they know and predicting. More. And predicting that the thing that they have that we don't have is they know a lot about the people who don't respond because huh. they have the, they have the, the file. file. They, gotcha. you know, are they registered? What's their sort of modeled likelihood of, of turning out and so forth? And they can adjust. And it's them. legal for pollsters to see those voting files. It is. Who, yeah. How do they get them? Do they buy them from there the are state? Companies, yeah, there are companies that sort of are intermediary and get them from the states, combine them and clean them up a little bit and then sell them, sell them to pollsters. Huh. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what poll does matter. The only one that matters. 
is the one on election day. Oh. On that yeah. note, Boy. thank you so much for your time today. I learned a lot. My pleasure. I really yes, appreciate it. Uh, we're going to have something for you guys in the feed tomorrow. As always, stay up with our coverage on your local public radio station or on the NPR One app. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Courtney Kennedy, director of Surrey Research, Pew Research Center. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs>